a bit of a weird handout because uh, the, the only thing typed out is the very end. <laughs> but I wanted you to walk away with these passages. Um, it's, it's terrible to hear passages and, well, what was that? And it just helps a lot to have it uh, typed out, I think. So I'm going to read just the first section of Ruth. Uh, this is an introduction to Ruth tonight. And we're going to say some things from the first part, but uh, we'll really get into Ruth uh, next week. Well, we're getting into Ruth tonight, but um, we'll start doing sections next week. This is more of an overview. Uh, beginning with verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this precious little book as we thank you for all of the word that you have so graciously given us. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word uh, by your powerful spirit. The spirit who gave this word, uh, may he open our minds, our hearts, our lives uh, to the truths that are embedded in this, uh, this book. Lord, may you do this and be glorified in it. Amen. Uh, the book of Ruth is certainly one of the most beautiful and finely crafted stories in ancient literature, recognized by almost anyone who reads it. People love this story, and we like it, of course, because it is a love story. We cannot get enough love stories. <laughs> Romantic books and movies pour forth one after another, Kay and I have watched our fair share, and I'm probably just as much for that as she is. So uh, that's the only respect in which I'm a good husband, maybe. But uh, <laughs> I love a good romance. And of course, this is one of the very best ever written. We like Ruth because it is a story about tragedy among everyday people and how that tragedy is resolved. That's always a good story. This happens to be a true story, but it's a wonderful story. Many of us can identify with Naomi's heart-rending loss, so bluntly stated in the opening paragraph. And then it's issues in her cry later in the first chapter that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. But we're also encouraged by the fulfillment in the end. Dean Ulrich has entitled his commentary on Ruth, From Famine to Fullness. We like Ruth because it is a story of hope and takes us from famine to fullness. 
We like Ruth also because it's a story of how God in the midst is in the midst of ordinary events in our lives. This is a major theme here. There are no obvious miracles in the story. There are no big interventions of God. There's no communication from God. So in that respect, it's kind of an odd book in that regard. It's like Esther and many times commentators do Esther and Ruth together because of that commonality in part. But God is in the midst, we realize he's in the midst of Naomi's pain. He's working it out for good in a way that could not have been imagined. Because this pain means Jesus Christ will be born in the line of Judah. That's pretty good working out for good, right? That's what's happening here. God is in the midst of the bold and risky decisions that Ruth and Boaz both make. We like Ruth because of the faithful love of the three main characters, especially Ruth and Boaz. In a short story like this, the character of people cannot be developed over time. It's simply revealed. It's like an epiphany, a sudden revelation of who they are in this short story. So the first words out of Ruth's mouth are an unexpected, abrupt unveiling of the heart of this marvelous woman. They just come out of nowhere. Do not urge me to leave you. She's just said, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. And she stops Naomi in her tracks in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You got that, Naomi? Right? I mean, it's shocking words from a daughter-in-law. Orpah did the normal thing. She walked out. She walked out. She got the point. You need to stay with your people. It's going to be dangerous. It's not ever good for a foreigner to be in another land. You best go back with your people. And Orpah said, you, you're right, you're right, I'll go, I'll go. And then Ruth, just out of the blue, this love that just seems out of nowhere, far beyond what you could even ever imagine. And, and this from a Moabite, right? She was born a pagan. And listen to her now. Bill Bennett calls this one of the greatest statements of friendship and loyalty in all of literature. And of course, we use it as much as we can, don't we, in our rituals. It's through Ruth's faithful love and Boaz's faithful love that Naomi is restored to fullness. And that's a major thing. God's faithful love working itself out in people's faithful love in this story. And, of course, we like Ruth because it has a surprise ending. The story of famine and death and love and loyalty worked out among people just like you and me is unveiled as a story about the birth of the greatest king in the Old Testament and ultimately the greatest king who ever lived or who ever will live, who is now the king of the world. It is a tiny slice of life among a few characters that has implications for world history. 
And I hope we'll get the point that our lives have implications for world history. Not in the same way, but our lives. We we cannot imagine what the life of this church as a whole has done and can do to affect world history through God's working. So in this little book, uh, meaning and beauty spill out in every direction like grapes falling out of a basket at harvest. You've seen a little kid in the midst of a dozen puppies trying to pick them up all at once and they're jumping up and down all around him and on him. It's puppies everywhere. And this story is like that. It's beauty everywhere. The story of Ruth is kind of like Snoopy's doghouse. I've used peanuts twice today. Uh, In 1958, Eight years after Peanuts first appeared, Snoopy began sleeping on top of his doghouse viewed from the side. Now, if you've ever, I've been given some, uh, there in my office here, but old first books of uh, Peanuts. And when you see Snoopy to start with, you know, he's down on all four legs, just running around like a little dog. That's just who he was to start with. And, if, and certainly, in, and he has said himself, uh, Schultz, that that's the greatest development of my comic strip was the development of Snoopy. Because, you know, he goes from walking all off fours to standing, then thought bubbles, and then he's in World War I, you know, fighting the Red Baron. I mean, that's a pretty good development from a little dog running around, right? But one of the great developments is the house itself. Because once Snoopy is lying on the house this way, and of course, if you think about it, that's not a comfortable way to sit on a, you know, <laughs> a roof, but that doesn't matter. It's, that's where he sleeps. But once that happens, you, you view it from the side and anything could be inside that little house. So from then on, the only view you have of the doghouse, because up to that point, you would see him sitting in his doghouse or lying in his doghouse, but now he's sleeping on his doghouse. Seems simple, but since you could no longer see the opening, he created a whole world inside the doghouse that defied physics. If you've seen Harry Potter and the the tent and they walk in and the tent, you know, is gigantic, but it's just a little tent. That's kind of like Snoopy's house. Um, it defied physics on the outside. It looks like a little doghouse, but inside, these are all documented, had a carpeted foyer, foyer, if you prefer, a den, a library, a guest room, a stairway, a basement. In 1964, we first hear about the Van Gogh he had hanging on the wall. After a fire destroyed the Van Gogh, it was replaced by an Andrew Wyeth. Of course you would, you know, you go from Van Gogh to Wyeth. Also at various times, this doghouse held bunk beds, a pool table, a ping pong table, a television, a mural painted by Linus, a shower, a cedar closet, a grandfather clock, and a jacuzzi. And I would say, Ruth is just like that. It's a tiny book, a short story, really, but it opens into a universe of the riches of God's providence and glory and the faith of his people who live out his covenant love. 
So it's kind of like safari every week as you go through Ruth. So this is part of your introduction to the book of Ruth. But we're going to introduce other aspects of it as we go through because I hate boring people with a laundry list of introductory features. Uh, I think they'll mean a lot more as we come up to those features in the book. So rather than describe the tiger, we'll try and see the tiger first, as it were. So for the rest of the time, I want to focus on the two primary themes of this story, which, and I've already mentioned them both, but you see them in your uh, handout. God's purpose worked out in everyday life. God's purpose worked out in everyday love. So first, worked out in everyday life, the way the story is set out Naomi, even though Ruth is the name of the book, Naomi is the main character of this book. In verses one and two, you have just what you would expect. It speaks about uh, Elimelech's wife, his wife. Verse two, his wife. But suddenly in verse three, and this doesn't happen in Hebrew normally, but in verse three, it, you get this, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. Oh. You know, fathers get that sometimes. It's that this is their daughter, this is their daughter, this is their daughter, and then she's 16 and she has a bunch of accomplishments, and then you're her father, right? (laughs) That's the way it works. She's the main character now. You're the side character. And that's what happens here. She has center stage. She's never again Naomi, wife of a Elimelech, even in the legal dealings in chapter four, she's simply Naomi who came back from Moab without reference to her husband at all. So, I mean, she is the main character. And even when Ruth is referred to as the widow of Malan, Naomi is simply Naomi. Uh, The only other time when she's referred as the mother-in-law of Orpah and Ruth, she's called even then just Naomi. Also, a Hebrew short story like this involves the statement of the problem and then the resolution of the problem, right? That's the way short stories go in Hebrew. So in verse five, the the narrator states the problem from Naomi's perspective because it's about her. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Problem. Okay. And the resolution is in terms of Naomi. When Boaz and Ruth have a child, it is spoken of as a blessing for Naomi. In fact, verse five has here has a touching note. You can't see it in the ESV or the English version or NIV, but the New American Standard is more accurate here because it says the woman was left without her two children. And her husband. It's the Hebrew word yelled, Y E L E D. And that refers to children or, or boys. And you know, you've seen touching scenes where a woman will lose her grown son and she'll say, What? My boy, my boy. And that's, that's the note here. She lost her boys, she lost her children. But this becomes the front end of an envelope. Hebrew Hebrews, uh, storytelling loves envelopes where you start somewhere and you end it and everything's in between. Paul has a lot of this too. 
So you get to verse 16. She took the yellet, the, the child, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. You see, this is the only time in the Old Testament that grown married men are called children. It's on purpose, right? She lost her children, and we end the book, she got her child back through Ruth. God, this is the story of of Ruth. Naomi lost her children. God restored her and gave her a child. So that's kind of a surprise. You know, if you're entitling according to who the main character is, this would be Naomi. But it works better as Ruth, I think, because she's the uh, she's the love interest, right, in here. Now, unlike the stories of Abraham and the patriarchs, as we've said, there are no appearances of God here. There are no visions, no words spoken between God and any of these characters. Unlike the story of Moses, there are no miracles, no cloud by day, fire by night, no manna, no water gushing from the rock. It's everyday life in Ruth. Yet God is in the midst of it. And that's what's so encouraging to us because there are none of these things going on in our lives. And it's easy to think, is God in the midst of this? How many times have people said, well, if he would do this or he'd show some, just some evidence that he's around, that he's here, that he's doing something. Sometimes we depend on that perhaps too much, right? We just, I need some sign, some indication when, as we'll talk about, he's given a pretty major indication by giving his son that he's all in for your good, right? I mean, that's a blanket statement on the whole of your life. I am all in. And Paul makes that point in Romans eight thirty two that we'll get to in a few weeks, that if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how is he going to hold anything back from us? That defines your life. Nothing is being held back from you. Every day you wake up. Okay, here's another day. Nothing's going to be held back good for me today. Nothing. Because he gave his son. That defines my life. Not how many things seem to be. I had a good day today or a bad day. And I understand. I'm not saying you can't have a bad day. We have bad days for sure. Uh, We have tragic days. But... Defining all of it is God's commitment to us in Christ. So this book is saying something similar in that in the midst of every uh, of your ordinary life day to day, this is what's going on always. God is working his wonderful plan out in your life and in others' lives. Now, we do have the perspective of the narrator in verse 6. Uh, he says that she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Or in chapter 4, verse 13, you have the narrator's perspective. Then the women said to Naomi, or the women's perspective conveyed by the narrator, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. So the whole assumed world is that God is in absolute control of every event. And the main characters uh, acknowledge God's sovereignty wherever you look. Because Naomi says in verses uh, eight and nine of chapter one, 
uh, go return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Verse nine, the Lord grant that you may find rest. Each of you in the house of her husband, kiss them. They wept, be gone. And of course, then uh, Ruth won't have it. Also in verse 13, when she's talking about uh, the, the, the bitterness of her life, she assigns that to the sovereignty of God. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And later in verses 20 and 21, uh, she says, do not call me Naomi for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So strong view of the sovereignty of God, both in blessing and in bitterness. It is always God's hand that is acting and God's hand that we have to deal with, which is one of our uh, greatest comforts. I think I've, I may have conveyed this to you. I think I have, but it bears repetition. A, f- a friend of ours lost uh, a child. In fact, it was going to be a tragedy and that sh- the child was going to be born uh, and die soon after. I know I said this, I'm just reminding you. And when I was trying to talk to her about uh, my own anger and frustration with this situation, uh, maybe opening up for her to talk about her possible anger. She says, I'm not angry at God. He's all I have. He's all I have. Right. So whatever's happened to me, good or bad, I'm dealing with God. And that's, that's a good thing, right? Always good. I'm dealing with God here. The God who loved me, the God who gave his son for me. I'm not dealing with fate or force or even people who've done something to me. Ultimately I'm dealing with God. Now, that really helps when you've been treated unjustly and maybe feel like you're continued to be treated unjustly and unfairly or you're oppressed in some way. It doesn't take away the reality and the terribleness of that oppression or injustice, but ultimately you have to deal with God that's allowing that to happen, that's chosen you for this who's called you into that suffering, that particular suffering. That helps me a world to realize it, it kind of, sometimes it actually has put a smile on my face, you know, where I think this per, oh, okay, I got you. Okay, <laughs> it's you, isn't it? Not that you're responsible, not that you did this evil thing, but you knew about it, you allowed it, you planned it, you call me into it, and you're going to sustain me and grow me in it. This is your life. It's not this person's life for me. This is your life for me. This is your dealing with me. Keep everything centered on who's sovereign. And I mean, it is sweet compared to it not being God, right? Anyway, that's been of inestimable help to me constantly. Um, but I digress. Let's, um, also, uh, Boaz in verse 12 of chapter two, uh, says the Lord repay you for what you've done to Ruth, a full reward be given you by the Lord. So even though there's no vision, no speaking, God speaking to people, uh, you can see throughout the whole background of this is God's working. But the events themselves aren't necessarily described as God did this. It's just 
this happened, this happened, this happened. But if a Hebrew is describing this to you in the background of the whole thing, God let this happen. God brought this about. God brought that about. So even in our language, we need to always have that as backdrop. This and this and this and this happened. But God allowed this to happen. God's doing this. God's involved here. Even in times when we've been mistreated or are being mistreated. God, Yahweh's involvement is shown in everyday happenings and the outworking of everyday events. So after he introduces Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So introduction of Boaz. Then you have this, you know, innocent sounding statement. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, I remind you. And of course, you know, everything goes up. Oh, she, wonder how she found the land of Boaz. I wonder who would think, you know. And you just see this is God's uh, working out in everyday life. But the important thing for us is to always realize it's no less the case with us, Right. No less the case with us. That's what's so encouraging about this. In everyday life, God's purpose is working itself out. So, from this meeting of Boaz in chapter 2 to their night meeting at the threshing floor in chapter 3, which is kind of PG-13-ish, right? To the legal dealings at the gate in chapter 4, God is working out his plan. So with us in the greatest loss and crippling loss and loss that seems hopeless, God is at work. He is behind the scenes. He's in the shadows. He's off stage, so to speak, in this story, but he's always there just as it is with us. In everyday life, he's at work. Nothing is left to chance. All is a part of his plan. And as we see regarding David, His plan involves things way bigger than we can imagine. And that's why trusting him and following him and seeking to live out his love in this world is so important because its effect can be monumental, is monumental. We're always playing for to win the game, so to speak. Ours is simply to be faithful, trust him live out his love, watch his glorious plan unfold. And in our setting, as I've already said, the cross is the measurement of his commitment, right? It is loving kindness, but it's loving kindness now defined by the cross itself. Um, And we'll get to a little more of that at the end. But let's move on. God's purpose worked out in everyday love. I won't be as long here. The intent of the story, of this story, is to show the quality of the characters, especially the character of uh, this word in Hebrew. Sorry. I'm like a a comedian that's not trying to be funny here. Where's my pen? Oh, I knocked my mic off. Okay. So, translated into English characters. Uh, This is chesed. In fact, we'll do this to help the pronunciation. So you have to say in Hebrew chesed, right? 
You have to sound like you're coughing to say it correctly. Um, chesed. This is uh, in scripture. You'll see it in our translation as steadfast love. In New American Standard, I think this is not as good a translation. It's loving kindness. NIV, as I recall, is excellent, unfailing love. And this, hundreds of times, this term is used in the Old Testament. It's scattered throughout the Psalms. God is praised for his loving kindness. And really, we would say, and that's why the song that we sang beforehand was so perfect, as usual, Laleda, um, covenant love. Sandra used that, uh, the covenant love of God. Covenant, because it's a binding agreement, right? It bounds you. Uh, the covenant was established with Abraham as God passed. He split the animals. He did the covenant like they did it in that day. And they would cut animals apart and they would walk between the animals and admit, may I be torn apart if I don't keep this covenant, right? And then here's God through smoking fire, passing between the pieces of animal saying in a, on a human basis or a human <clears throat> uh, ritual, May I be torn apart if that were possible. But he still takes it. May I be torn apart if I don't keep this covenant. That's covenant. That's commitment. And of course, God indicates his covenant commitment in the dying of his son. So you could call this also undying love, right? Because it's faithful. It will never stop. It's steadfast but undying love ultimately in scripture means what? Dying love. Undying love means dying love. And they're not saying two different things. Saying the same thing. Because undying love will die for you. That's just an amazing part of scripture. This loving kindness that we see all through the Old Testament, it's one of the main features, you know, as, as we'll see in the, the first verse, in fact, that you see there, uh, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, abounding in steadfast love. And that, that little phrase, that little uh, formula is repeated all through scripture as the basic description of who God is. So ringing in our ears in God's self-descriptions is the last phrase, abounding in steadfast love. And then you have the final show of what steadfast undying love means. It's dying love, as we read from Philippians 2, that he did not hold equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but poured himself out. And I like the translation not although he was God, because that's a, it, it, it's up for grabs as to how you translate uh, the phrase. But I favor those uh, theologians and scholars that say, since he was God, he did not hold the quality of the thing to be grasped, but poured himself out. Because that's what God does. 
right? That's what a God of steadfast love does. He pours himself out for others. He's absolutely other-centered. And I believe in the Trinity itself from all eternity, they were just constantly other-centered. The Son to the Father, the Father to the Son, Father and Son to the Holy Spirit, focused on each other, glorifying each other, honoring each other, welcome each other, rejoicing in each other. You've ever been to a party where you laugh so hard your mouth hurts and you think about it for days, maybe months afterwards? That's the party that's been going on in heaven forever. It's a party of steadfast love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we had the wonderful glory that that steadfast love between them turned itself out upon us. So Jesus can say, Father loves you with the love with which he loves me. How do you even talk about stuff like that? Anyway, so first, Ruth's first love in verses 16 and 17 are basically expressing her steadfast love, right? Don't tear, you cannot tear me away. She's clinging to her. I tell you what, 651, I'm going to, we'll finish this out uh, next week, but let me because uh, we'll, we'll see more of how this shows itself out uh, in, in the verse, in, in, in the book. But let's skip over just to soak ourselves a little bit in the Old Testament's statement about steadfast love. Hear the call in Proverbs 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. 1922, what is desired in a man is steadfast love. A poor man is better than a liar. Steadfast love is everything. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. By steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness, that steadfast love, that chesed uh, kindness, will find life, righteousness, and honor. And then for the woman, the Proverbs woman, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of chesed is on her tongue, steadfast love. So one of the major qualities of any woman that exhibits her God likeness is steadfast love. And the prophets have a lot about it because they had not walked in steadfast love. The, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. And then finally, Hosea 12, hold fast to love that is steadfast love and justice. So these, what's interesting about this is that Ruth sometimes in ancient literature was placed where it is with Samuel because of its naturally leading to the birth of David. But other times it's put with the prophets as part of the prophetic announcement, as part of saying to uh, Israel, calling Israel to steadfast love along with the prophetic word of Hosea uh, and other prophets. And 
it shows that steadfast love was the means of bringing out the birth of David and the establishment of David's kingship. Will it not be instrumental in our submitting to Yahweh, who's full of chesed and living out his chesed in response to his word? And you can see where throughout the New Testament, when it tells us to imitate Christ, it's basically to live out his true exhibited chesed love. And it comes in these terms. Now, the new law, as Jesus calls it, is you love one another as what? As I have loved you with chesed love, undying yet dying love. That's the love that we get to live out. And I say it, we get to live it out because the same spirit that enabled Jesus to give himself up on the cross, Hebrews 9, that's the spirit that indwells us. And we can walk in that same love, that chesed love. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the revelation of your beauty in everyday life, your beauty in the everyday life of this little book and in our lives. May we exhibit the beauty of your love in the everyday, all day things that we do. Oh Lord, how that will refresh us, how it will change other people's lives, how it will bring honor to you because we'll be little exhibits of God's temple on earth manifesting the beauty of his character. Oh, bless us, Lord, for your sake. Amen.